Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. Time for another interesting discussion. I'm very happy to have Abhinav Prakash once again on the podcast with me. Abhinav, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kushal, for inviting me. All right, guys, today's discussion is titled The Rural Indian Myth. So let me lay a little bit of a background as to why I wanted to talk about this subject with uh, Abhinav. So I'm going to start with giving a shout out to a common friend of Abhinav and mine, Razib Khan. So Abhinav recently had gone on uh, the Brown Pandits podcast. Please subscribe to Brown Pandits too. Uh, uh, they're very good podcasts. So Abhinav, it was a larger discussion about the farmer protests. But within that, there was a subset where Abhinav was talking about the rural-urban divide in India or the rural-urban breakup in India, if I was to use an even more accurate word. And then I, I, you know, it got me thinking. I was like, you know what? I mean, I'm an employer. Right? I, I, I run a textile business. I employ people. And most of my workers uh, who work with me, I don't know how to classify them. In fact, we, just before we went live, I was telling Abhinav, Ki, Abhinav, I don't understand my community. You know, they come here, they work for a few months, then they go back. Like, you know, the average rotation is like they'll come to Bombay or areas like Bhivandi or any other area. They'll work for a couple of months, then they go back to their village. So how they work is, I'm just giving you guys this information because I, I think you might find it interesting how these workers, migrant workers work. So they have rented uh up uh, i don't know what you call them i mean in, in urban slums they have these rented areas where four or five of them stay together now what they do is they don't leave that apartment they keep it for 12 months but they rotate it amongst a pool of say eight to ten people so it'll be like okay i'm gonna be here so when i'm here i'm gonna pay the rent then i go back you come here when you come i'll go then you pay the rent and then they rotate it in this way but they're not strictly urban and they're not strictly rural. They, they come alone, the wives and the family, the kids, everyone is in rural India. I, I usually think the, the women take care of the farming with the kids. It's only when the hard labor work is involved, these people tend to go back because that's when the male uh, input is required. So they tend to go back. Uh, in Hindi, they say, dhan katna hai saab, hum wapis ja rahe. That's what they tell tell us all the time. Dhan kartna. So I guess when it's the harvesting season, they tend to go back. So in that case, I, it just got me thinking, listening to Abhinav talk to Razib on that podcast. I was like, hang on. Is India truly urban or is India truly rural? I definitely don't buy that uh, the famous saying in Hindi, Bharat gaon mein basai. I don't think so, Bharat gaon mein basai. In my view, Bharat shehron mein basai. Now... <coughs> Having said that, I started uh, checking the data. But before I get into that, I, I, I wanted to share this experience of mine before I let uh, Abhinav uh, speak. So Abhinav, what according to you is the reality on the ground? Do you think uh, there is something which is being sold to us like a rural Indian myth? <laughs> oh, Definitely, Kushal. And first of all, thank you for my, having me on your podcast. And uh, welcome all the guests who are listening to this podcast. Uh, it's true. I mean, we have been romanticizing this agrarian India for too long and we have been romanticizing the villages of India for too long. And the reason, in my opinion, lies in a particular historical conjuncture in India, which is the imperial rule, the colonial rule. Uh, when the British started ruling India, uh, you know, the imperialism is also about characterization of the people. It's also about knowledge as much as it is about rule by the force. 
as much as it is about political domination, it's also about intellectual domination. Uh, and one of the way intellectual domination is perpetuated by defining the people, you know, that your gaze is upon the people. You are classifying them. You are defining them. Basically, you say, like, when you name it, you own it. So when the Britishers and the other European scholars started studying India from a modern social science, social science perspective, they saw India as this pre-industrial society, which is very pristine, which is very serene, which is, you know, very uh, a, a ruler society where people are not interested in the industrial pursuit. They are not interested in materialism. I mean, I'm pretty sure you will laugh at it, Kushal, but this is how they classify that Indians are not materialistic people. They're spiritual people. They're outwardly people. They're always thinking about the great philosophies. What they used to call them otherworldly. Otherworldly. Yeah, this is true. So India is this timeless society, village society stuck in some uh, rigid caste structure and there has been no change over the millennia. And this is how they classified India. Uh, and uh, the point is that now the Britishers were doing that, so the Indian response was natural. So when your nationalist movement started, so your scholars from uh, left to right, I would say, they contested this point. They contested this point basically by saying that, yes, this is true, that Indians are not decadent, materialistic, industrial, industrialized uh, society like the West. We are spiritual people. We have this community solidarity. We live in the villages. We are not spoiled by the modernization, and we are superior to you. You know, uh, this is what Gandhi exemplifies in, in the extreme: that spiritual India is superior than the materialistic West. But even the Hindu nationalists were not immune to this kind of delusion, and this is a very important point, because Hindu nationalists, the in the beginning, were very pro-modern. So you you see that their role model was Japan, right? It was never some uh, uh, village economy of the ancient India. It was Japan. They were looking forward to becoming like Japan. So they wanted modernization, industrialization, urbanization. But even they were not immune to this kind of charm of talking back to the British by glorifying what existed on the ground. And I think that created an ideological distortion. That created a distortion in how we view ourselves, our own self-image. And we never question the basis of the British characterization of India as a ruler economy. Because remember, the time period in which Britishers are talking about, and not just the Britishers, they, they say the Westerners, is that India has already gone a phase of chaos, anarchy, deindustrialization, deurbanization, precisely because of the British conquest of India. So we forget that the British conquest of India was an extremely brutal process. Somehow we remember the brutality of the Turks in the medieval ages. But we somehow do not have this view of the British conquest. We, we basically say, oh, British has brought railways to India. But Britishers were extremely brutal, extremely barbaric in the way they conquered India. right? And even after they conquered India, they were even more barbaric. So uh, I come from Awadh. So after they suppressed the revolt of 1857, Kushal, some historians have estimated that one crore people died in the next 10 years because of the British policy, deliberate British policy to destroy the countryside and the cities. You know? Mm. destroying the crops, pausing the well, and different kinds of things. It was a deliberate policy which the British adopted. So India has undergone a phase of de-urbanization, de-industrialization, and this is the time we were talking about. But we never challenged, we never talked back to the Britishers 
or the Europeans in a way we should have been. Now that created this ideological, I will say, confusion in how we view India and that contribute. Second reason is also very important. See, the Gandhi, in my opinion, was a disaster for India, right? But I have, I mean, overall, he was a disaster, complete disaster, in my opinion, except one point, and which is his historical role, and which I appreciate, which I respect Gandhi for, is that he was able to convert India's freedom struggle into a mass movement. So from this uh, elite urban Chakrati club writing petitions to the British uh, uh, empire or the British rulers, he converted that into a mass movement. And he did that by mobilizing the Kisan class of this country. So the Gandhi went to the farmers. He was able to mobilize them. He was able to point out Jamindars as the enemy of the people because they were pro-Britishers. So they were anyways a very small minority of the uh, population. The Jamindars were excluded. Everyone else, medium, large farmer, and also the tenants became the uh, you know, uh, uh, mainstay of the freedom struggle, which was inaugurated by the Gandhi. The phase of the freedom struggle inaugurated by the Gandhi. Now, here you have to notice one thing, Kushal. While Gandhi and Congress, before independence, always talked about Kisan, you know, uh, Kisan ka ye, Kisan ka wo, they never talked about landless laborers. This is something you have to notice. Gandhi never talked about landless laborers beyond token thing, right? Beyond some token symbolism here and there. And it was common sense. Because see, in the villages, you're mobilizing the Kisans to become the mainstay of the freedom struggle. And if you start talking about the landless laborers, you are basically bringing in contradiction in the entire polity and your mobilization will collapse. So they basically through the urban laborers, the, the village laborers under the bus, and Kisan become the center focal point of all this glorification, mobilization, and all those things. And this had its impact after independence when we did so-called land reforms. The land reforms in India were not land reforms in the true sense. Land reforms means land to the tillers. Who are the tillers in the villages? The people who are working on the field, the agricultural laborers, who are in far greater number, far, far greater number than the Kisans. They never got any land. What we had in India was tenancy reform. The big Jamindaris were abolished. It was easy to do so. And the tenants who were renting out the land from Jamindar, they were saying, you are the owner of the land, right? So this uh, created another problem now, that even after independence, the village economy never changed. And the Kisans became too powerful. So Jamindars were out of the question. Now it's the Kisans who are the powerful section of the society. And because our majority of the population up until I would say 2000 lived in the villages. So if any party has to win the election, they have to go to the villages and win the villages, which means they have to go to the dominant section of the villages, which are Kisans. So you have to make sure that Kisans are on your side because they control economic power, social power, so automatically political power. So this entire distortion of glorification of Kisan, glorification of village India comes from these two things, ideological construct and also practical political construct. Yeah, so let us now, you know, narrow down on the problem with urbanization or the definition of urbanization in India. So as per the planning commission, right, uh, or, or the census of 2011, 31% of India is urban, right? That That is the official answer for India. Now, uh, 
from what I have understood, the definition of urban in India is one of the stringest in the world. So we have a three criteria definition of what constitutes as urban in India. And I have written the name. One is population size. The other is population density. Then the third is the proportion of adult males employed in other uh, agricultural activities. Now, here's the catch. Most countries in the world have either got two of these three criteria or one. Now, Abhinav, here's the catch. Now, there is obviously, I think it was Vivek, Vivek Dahijia's uh, study, right? Uh, looking at uh, the illumination data, right? The light, uh, satellite images and illumination. If you look at that, I think Vivek's study uh, estimated around 63% of India to be urban or 64% of India to be urban. But then there was some problem about the illumination data. Some people were saying that uh that's not the exact way of looking at uh, whether uh india is urban or rural or not so let us first try and look at this problem itself why the hell have not we not been able to even make make inroads into something as basic as how the hell are we supposed to define what an urban area is so in your opinion how, if you were there so how would you go about defining an urban area let's say so would you go by the population criteria which will be say a lot of people do that right they say anything 5000 people and above should be maybe classified as an urban area so what's your view on that let's first define what we would like to call an urban area or what we would like to call a rural area well you are asking me to do something which the government of india has not been able to do but i will try my best Michel. Uh, i think this uh, I think the first criteria that no more than 5,000 people is a good enough criteria because see, uh, when do a society or when do a community or a settlement support larger population? An agricultural society cannot really support that much of population. They are, uh, the, uh, as you become more economically diverse, you, your society becomes far more sophisticated, your capability to sustain larger population also increases and that's the hallmark of the urbanization. Uh, you know, so if you have larger population living together, it can't be villages. It's just impossible that that area can be called a village. Uh, other thing is this: uh, the problem which arises in India is because uh, how we define it, and also it arises because no one wants to do anything. So problem in every Indian institution, Kushal, is that no one wants to do anything. I mean, we have this case of Delhi University Vice Chancellor who was kicked out by the government. Finally, thankfully. Uh, for four years, he did nothing. He would not even sign on a single piece of paper. He would not take any decision because he think if I do something, something goes wrong, I will be held responsible. And this is a problem which pervades all the institutions of India top to down. Right? So in the census also, no one wants to do this thing. Kaun karega, kaun karega, committee banayega, all those things. And this is what has happened is that if you travel across the North India, I can tell it from my personal experience. You have these cities who, which have expanded so fast in the last 10, 15 years that all the villages who were on the neighboring, uh, uh, who are the who are on the neighboring border of the cities, they're now inside the cities. I mean, properly inside the cities. They're heavily built up areas. They're completely urban areas. Even the majority of the population do not live on agriculture. They are service class people, but those areas are still classified as villages. They're still not the part of the Nagar Nigam, they are the part of the Gram Panchayat. So this entire uh, joke which you see in Delhi, I mean, Delhi is a megapolis, right? It's a, it's a, it's a metropolis of two crore people, the de entire Delhi NCR region. 
but even inside the delhi proper you have this lal dora chhetra you know this which are classified as villages so just in front of jnu you have Ber, uh, munirka you have bersarai next to you have katwaria sarai which are completely urban areas i mean completely urban there's not a hint of the village life village culture village based occupation on in those areas they are all commercial areas they classified as the villages in this country right so this kind of uh, misclassification which has happened is extremely problematic i think what we should do classify urbanization simply as the i would say the number of people living in that area plus maybe the population density because this agricultural occupation criteria is no longer valid it was valid in that time because we we said you know we do not really want to overestimate urban population otherwise it will has impact on the uh, allocation of funds and all but now anyways majority of india do not live on agriculture less than 40% people are dependent on the agricultural sector i think the exact number is 37 or something if i'm not wrong i'm not recalling it correctly but i think we should drop the third criteria and go with the first criteria perhaps if you want we can use the second criteria as well so so there so this is where the catch comes is very interesting so as per the government of india census right so 31% as i said is uh, is urban but if we take the criteria you're talking about which is 5000 people and let's say we take the population density to be uh, 400 people per square kilometer if we take two of them the figure shoots up to 50% of the population is urban look at the jump from 31% we are straight away going to 50% that changes the game right now if so let us take your criteria as a baseline now we have set the baseline as even in this case half of india is urban half of india is rural if that is the case let us now get into the meat of the subject let us now get into the policy policies about a uh, rural india and policies about urban india now i'll give you a very interesting scenario again from my entrepreneurial experience and my business experience so it's so interesting so even in a in a state like maharashtra let's say in a area like bhiwandi now in bhiwandi i clearly remember when i used to go there for visits uh, on and off i would see like you know so on the right hand side will be the bhiwandi municipal corporation and on the left hand side will be the gram panchayat the bhiwandi gram panchayat you will not believe it there are totally different sets of rules for the your factories on the left and the factories on the right completely different <laughs> sets of rules it's like two different worlds same business right there will be a, a textile loom shed on the left in the gram panchayat there will be a textile loom shed on the right in the uh, Nag- nagarpalika no head or tail Uh, la- uh, everything varies uh, taxes vary municipal taxes vary the way you're supposed to do your business varies your marginal spaces in your building area vary like how do you construct your building vary i mean how the hell can we manage something like that it is literally and the, and the density of population is the same on the left and the right so in such a scenario <laughs> how how does one uh, and then i'll tell you where people would get attracted to the gram panchayat is because of the rules were so lax for the gram panchayat yeah. and the rules for the urban population were hard as hell so in a very weird way we are actually disincentivizing urbanization in india in such a scenario what do you think i completely agree kushal i mean i can tell you from the delhi's experience so I was telling you about these village areas inside the delhi right munirka besra shahpur jat and all so uh, i mean if you go there there 
the the height of the building is like five story six story and you see those buildings they're completely unsafe and uh, i mean if you, if you just moved on the other side of the road the maximum height of the building can be only three story building because those are urban areas but inside these complexes these enclaves you can be six stories and they're so unsafe that if the earthquake comes i mean i'm, I'm i should not say that but it's very difficult that anyone will survive out there but uh, this is how we have been dealing with our policy making in this country we have actually this you know distortion in the policy making because we are misclassifying our population and this 50% is also an underestimation because we have to also account for huge migrant population kushal we forget that so uh, recently there were bihar elections which are conducted the amount of people who left noida gaziabad i'm not even talking about delhi gurgaon right and sira uh, I'm, i'm just talking about the noida gaziabad which are in up the number of people who went back to bihar to vote is staggering i mean you can see that you can see that that the number of people going catching trains or planning to go taking a car or something but that's that's like bizarre because these people are living in these areas perhaps for 10 years for 15 years some of them might even have permanent houses out here but they have their voter id card back in the villages so they are still classified in the for the purpose of electoral data in the villages not in the cities then you have these people who are coming from let's say uh, 50 km away from delhi right so uh, let's say from the neighboring districts of delhi or some villages of delhi they come here they live here for uh, you know uh, they they rent an apartment rent a room basically most more likely they live here for 6 days a week one day they go back home then come back again in the morning or they go back every fortnightly but effectively they are urban population because they're spending majority of their time in the cities even though they might claim that this is our permanent address in the villages so there is no way to account for their data but if you account for their data i think the the study which said that 64% of india's urban is more than accurate right the number of people living in urban areas is extremely high and we all can see that around us i mean unless we want to be completely blind to it but that creates a policy distortion how question because the seats in the parliament and the legislatures are allocated on the basis of the population so if you are underestimating our population in the urban areas and overestimating them in the villages then of course the amount the type of allocation we have today is completely uh, wrong i would say there is no the way to define it is completely faulty which means that the villages still command or control disproportionate political power in the indian political system and this shows its impact you know i mean you think about it how bizarre it is that you're living in noida for 10 years but when you have to vote in the election you go back to bihar you go back to your village and vote on the local caste consideration right you're not voting on the urban consideration despite living here for 10 years but you're going back and uh, whatever family members are saying or whatever the local candidate is you're voting on that basis i mean this distorts the entire intermediation democratic intermediation in india that urban areas are com- getting completely neglected rural areas are getting disproportionate influence and attention from the political parties not just that these people from urban centers going back to the villages and voting there also distort the voting pattern so uh, you know it creates this problem and the other problem which i before i forget i should say this thing 
Kushal, we need NRC in this country as soon as possible. We need NPR and NRC. We are the only country which thinks that we can run a modern state without data. We really don't have data on anything in this country. And it's not the fault of this government, right? As people say, oh, under this government, data is so bad. It was always bad. We always had a problem of data in this country because we never tried to do that. Pakistan has an RC. Bangladesh has an RC. India can't have an RC. So remember, in the recent lockdown, when lots of migrant labor started leaving the cities, the government actually thought of giving them you know, cash transfers, thought of giving them some kind of support, targeted support, you know, just, just support these migrant laborers for the wages, with the wages and all those things. They realized they did not have any data. So they could not even support that. But even if you look at the migrant population which left the cities, that tells you, you know, the amount of the, the rate of urbanization in this country, which is large. And because the political power is, uh, uh, you know, uh, allocated in a faulty manner, so the urban areas suffer, political parties do not pay attention to the urban areas. So what you have in urban areas are slums, bad rules and regulations like you were talking about, chaos, urban transport sucks in this country, and you have n number of problems. But do the villages benefit? No. Even though the villages enjoy disproportionate political representation, they also do not benefit because it's a very small class in the villages which control the political power. And they are really not interested. And they have been proven themselves not to be interested in the welfare of the entire villages. So, so this Kisan class, or the big Kisan specifically, who control the political power, they are doing well. I mean, they are able to uh, channelize all the subsidies, free electricity, free water, MSP, whatnot. But the entire village is suffering under them. So it, it's a very bad situation in this country. I think the reason lies in the misallocation of the parliamentary seats and the political representation. So just to give you, you know, an idea to the ones who are, I'm talking about the ones who are listening to this right now, just to give you an idea about the disproportionate uh, representation of urban India and rural India, an average rural Lok Sabha constituency would not have more than 10 to 15 lakh voters. I mean, you go to <laughs> Lok Sabha constituency in the city, it is always 20 lakhs, 22 lakhs, 24 lakhs. I mean, first of all, let, let's take the city of Mumbai, right? Mumbai needs more member of parliaments. We are grossly underrepresented and underrepresented. I mean, how just, okay, uh, I have spent hours in a member of parliament's office. I can tell you from the horse's mouth. Oh my God, they are overburdened. It's like they, they don't get one second, one second in an urban constituency. I'm not demeaning the role of rural constituents. Please don't get me wrong. What I'm trying to say is, can we release a little bit of the stress of the urban member of parliament the amount of people an urban member of parliament has to cater to it's just mind-boggling bombay needs at least 10 members of parliament we don't have it delhi needs more than 11 12 members of parliament because delhi is more populated than mumbai we need more kolkata needs more member of parliament uh, chennai needs more members of parliament bengaluru needs more members of parliament i just don't get it and this delimitation exercise is so weird in India because everything is done from a caste matrix. Everything in India is from a caste matrix. 
मतलब चैन की नींद दो मिनट नहीं सोच सकते जब तक जात नहीं आ जाती तुम्हारी उस डिस्कशन में इंडिया में हर चीज में जात घुसेड़ देते हैं वी आर नॉट देर इज नो डिलीवरी मैकेनिज्म इन इंडिया इमेजिन आई मीन इफ इवन इफ यू वॉन्टेड टू रीच आउट टू आई गिव एन एग्जाम्पल वेन आई टू लिव इन कैनेडा आई टॉकिंग अबाउट टू थाउजेंड वन पेट्रोल पंप they used, they call it a gas station over there so this my friends were filling gas there and we were just standing there and a man came usne petrol bhara andar gaya paisa diya chale gaya do teen logon ko usne aise wave kiya so i asked my friends i was like is he a celebrity or something is like no he's the member of parliament he was just waving as a kya come the member of parliament comes fills in the gas himself goes inside pays the payment himself and the amount of people a member of parliament from toronto has to attend is hardly anything 4 lakhs 5 lakhs what what kya attend karna unko they can give better services to people so why do you think abhinav are we still clinging on to this like i'll give you an example so let us even look at this migration issue now while i am sympathetic to your line but i would like to bring in the paper that and i i would uh, actually share the screen for others so that you know everybody i would recommend all of you all to read this paper i'd recommend you guys to read this paper it was by igc international growth center uh, it is called urbanization demographic transition and the growth of cities in india 1870 to 2020 now the interesting finding of this paper was that indian migration from rural areas to urban areas has been very weird it has been circular so the the standard argument is that urban centers tend to you know give you some better uh, uh, facilities in terms of economies of scale better job opportunities better living conditions better health infrastructure etc etc the standard arguments that are in uh, favor of the urban areas so people migrate to urban areas but in india we've seen this trend that from 2011 onwards our growth in urbanization seems to have stagnated now alignment also shared a very interesting chart it is from the same paper by the way so just look at this chart here abhinav so the chart is very interesting if you look at the uh, growth in urban population it's been falling so we we are falling in every year and this is taken from the same paper that i'm talking about by chinmay tumbe now the reasons they state in this paper the 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 summary of the paper and the reasons they state in this paper one of the major reasons has been that the economy in the urban centers since 2011 onwards and one of the major economic drivers in india uh, especially to urban india again uh, this just just sharing charts for people who are watching this live because i just like to be very transparent so as you see the chart on the screen guys so construction has been one of the major drivers of urban migration in india a slump in the real estate sector has been attributed to be one of the main factors to the lack of migration into urban centers so what has happened is whenever an opportunity comes up people tend to come to urban india and then they tend to go back to their villages where where i explained the scenario of my own uh, you know my own workers who i hire they will work for two months and they are gone back to the village now in such a scenario i mean what do you think what what kind of measures can a government take where i'm not saying we need more people coming to mumbai i'm saying we need 100 more mumbais in this country that's what my argument is so what do you think we are supposed to do then in such a scenario we are completely right i mean i mean and why this is happening is also very important question because 
as the vishu guru of this world we have always failed we have always missed the bus of industrialization so we missed it in 60s we missed that in the 70s and 80s we again we are again uh, we don't know whether we will succeed today or not so this is a major problem that we have in this country that we do not have manufacturing base and this is the manufacturing sector only which can absorb the people from the villages give them a decent living standard in the cities so that they become completely urban population as of now what is happening your growth is uh, coming from the services sector and all which cannot i mean a, a, a person from the uh, let's say from the village let's say if he's a small and marginal farmer or even if he's just coming from a, a well to do farmer's family is highly unlikely that the person is going to get a job in uh, this high tech uh, industry it industry of this country there are examples of course in a large country so you can always quote 100000 examples of people doing that but as a community that is not happening uh, because that's too complex this amount of skill training we need to do the amount of education we require is extremely high and we have completely failed on that account as well i mean india is a perhaps a case study how it has failed to educate its people despite saying we want to educate its people i mean this is experience to see no other country the japan was able to achieve 100% literacy in the 19th century within 10 years i mean of the uh, non adult population non older population why we we just we just can't even do that so the problem is that we do not have enough economic opportunities there's a problem of uh, missing middle in this country we do not have a proper middle class in this country you talk to i mean my my driver my housemate also say they are middle class and i think that if they are middle class what am i you know so in india you ask everyone everyone is middle class in this country but actual size of middle class is is really very small i mean there are studies on that that is not even half of what is projected in this country the point is that they are not well paying job point is that there are stable jobs in this country the reason is that we are not an industrialized country we have failed the manufacturing bus and that is why the people are coming to the cities because the condition in villages are extremely bad but they can't stay put here for a long time so it's a circular kind of a thing so you come here you get a job in construction you work for 3 4 months 6 months then when diwali comes then you go back for 2 months to your home and entire real estate industry is basically uh it shuts down during the diwali because you know lots of people go back to their home so this is the problem out here what can the government do the only thing that the government should be focusing on in india is industrialization industrialization and industrialization forget every other thing right don't give me this gandhian gyan don't give me this uh, all this kind of statements of intent of welfare and all just go for hardcore old style industrialization but remember industrialization is not simply about setting up industry it's not simply about importing some technology and manufacturing in india industrialization is a socio economic transformation of the society it's a very chaotic very violent and a long drawn process it's not an easy process no society in the world has been able to industrialize peacefully it has always been accompanied by chaos anarchy and violence but this is something we need to really think of very carefully because our policy so far has been shying away from taking tough decisions to do industrialization i mean farms bill you take for example when china started liberalization process they started it with agriculture they did not start with at the top down you know uh, heavy industry or uh, it sector or something this started from agriculture the opening up of chinese economy towards pro market policies 
began in the agricultural sector and that was able to create uh, you know grassroots prosperity for lots of farmers the conditions were better off than before within few years and that gave widespread legitimacy to the economic reforms in the china and that is why china was able to push through the economic reforms like no other country could whereas in india we did not do anything with the farms love agriculture sector and i as i have been saying for long that only thing wrong in the farms laws is that they are 30 years too late and that's it that's only thing wrong in this laws and that is why you know in india the reforms are always seen as suspect because initial rounds of reforms of the 191 and all did not really benefit the masses to that extent as they should have and that creates the crisis of legitimacy so the government should think very carefully about how to do this thing they should really double down on the reforms they should not back down on the agricultural reforms at all no matter what the farmer unions do let them do their worst you shouldn't back down other point is that focus your energy on these cities it's high time that you start investing in cities seriously i'm very happy that yogi adityanath understands that he's doing that you no know, and i think within 10 15 years the entire belt from delhi to greater noida will be a metropolis i mean it's it's really going to be a megapolis in the coming years a, a stretch of urban uh, you know uh, a center which will be one of the largest in the world and this is what you need to do because we need to understand question one thing more the economic growth comes from the cities it doesn't come from the villages right in an industrial age in the age of technology the cities are the engines of knowledge production cities are the places where you have the technological innovation and there you know network effect there anthropological uh, reasons why it happens it can never happen in some hamlet in the village i mean exceptions abound exceptions can be anywhere but cities produce knowledge and modern economic growth most of the modern economic growth rate is accounted by by technological progress the amount of knowledge you produce in the society amount of innovation you produce in the society determines your economic growth and this is why this indian obsession of education or university as some kind of a ashram situated away from the mainstream society is a stupid obsession i mean it doesn't work in the industrial age is um, the is uh, is complete buffoonery now when jnu was built kushal jnu was built outside the delhi i mean now it's inside the delhi because cities were expanded it was an outpost somewhere in the hills of aravalli untouched by the uh, you know uh, the currents of the society and island in india where intellectuals will think and debate and what not and we know what they ended up doing uh, but the point is that we should stop doing that the university campuses our colleges campuses should be you no know, one tall multi story building in the middle of the city so that it has better collaboration better network effect with the surrounding uh, areas now if you're working you're doing a job in city you want to have a degree you do your job within 5 minute you can go to the university in the evening do your 2 hour class come back this is how you keep upgrading yourself so these are the things we need to change because if you want to industrialize we have to change lots of other policy because it's a synergy we are talking about it's not just setting up a factory and producing certain things yeah i agree and another interesting point abhin from the tumbe paper so <laughs> it basically proves your point about uh, urbanization and industrialization so tumbe's paper says uh, the main reason we are not able to urbanize is <laughs> we've somehow not managed to keep our people in the urban areas all this while that's the biggest problem we let them go back to the villages 
and that's the reason uh, it's a very counterintuitive reason that you know tumbe's paper goes around talking about oh so it seems our urbanization is stagnating and he said like, but why are we stagnating oh these people seem to be going back that's why we're stagnating because what happens when you don't go back what's the second move right pehle worker khud aata hai then the worker says abhi parivar ko lana hai then he moves out of that slum and then he goes into jisko wo kehte na room lena hai abhi hame um hum abhi hamare liye room lenge so i'll go and buy a room for my children and my wife then what will i do i'll need school i'll need education for my children so i'll invest in those things now unlike india the tumbe paper says china so the government actually regulates rural urban migration through permits and entitlement to welfare schemes can you believe that so china actually made this move to urban centers by giving them welfare schemes ki boss get out of those hell holes and come into the urban centers so do you think india can actually india mein to ulta hota hai na we always have this uh, we're doing the one scheme for urban india we'll remove that scheme now look at the washrooms also right it's not like urban india did not lead washrooms but look at the money allocation also when it comes to money allocation because i've worked on both right i have hands on experience of working in building washrooms in urban constituencies and in building of washrooms in rural constituencies and i can tell you from the horse's mouth that the money allocated to rural india is far more now I, there are justifications for that on a pro rata basis but even after that i can tell you for sure that the money allocation is just totally lopsided so do you think eventually maybe we'll have to create a situation where and i'll go into the political aspect of it in the last part but what do you think about this what uh, this this tumbe analogy of we have to make sure they don't go back how do we make sure they don't go back uh, is there any other way other than just basically creating manufacturing jobs no uh, this is very interesting about china so lots of people think that uh, i mean china was able to industrialize simply because it was able to provide cheap labor and was able to liberalize its economy and remove all the labor laws i mean this is a misconception we have uh, we forget the chinese uh, population was educated and this was the one of the achievements of the communist regime before the reforms in china that they were able to educate their people so chinese labor is highly educated unlike the indian labor because somehow in india we think education is you know i mean we 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 think this thing you know it comes out in the policy it comes on the popular discussion i remember i mean when manmohan singh government was there and uh, they increased the number of iits so they opened up new iits and i and i know in in the drawing rooms of the middle class families of this country and also the people in the universities whose brothers were preparing or sisters were preparing for iits or were studying in iit they were very angry about it and the statement was ghar ghar mein when say gali gali mein iit kholne kya and my point was boss india is a country of more than a billion population your one district has a population of 30 40 lakh why can't you have one iit every district if you are able to maintain the quality what's wrong in this so this this idea of limiting the education or rent seeking on education by limiting its spread is a very problematic thing in india and it's it's like you can see that in the policy making somehow we are conditioned to that kind of mentality in this country china wasn't from the beginning so they were able to educate its people its labor force is highly skilled its labor force is educated once you have an educated labor force it's easy to skill them more easily so in india you keep this debate of you know vocational training versus formal training right you say well schooling is bad it's useless because you're not teaching them anything so let's give them their uh, vocational training you forget they're not substitute of each other they're complementary 
an edu- a person who has formal education for initial in the initial years of his life if you give him vocational training it will be, be he will be better off he can catch up very easily now here is the problem out there the chinese government actually provide and provided lots of welfare to serve the population so they regulated the migration but you are when you are in the city you have access to subsidized home you have access to sub- subsidized uh, uh, food you have ex- you had access to uh, what to say better living conditions so that created an incentive for those people to stay in the city and of course you had good jobs because of manufacturing in india we have none i mean if you are an urban poor in this country where do you go i mean you don't even have proper places to live in this country because your property rights are so messed up your tenancy laws are so bad in this country you have i mean no one wants to rent out his home i have seen so many people even in delhi uh, especially the older people they are really very scared of renting out their properties because they say if someone is trying to take it over tomorrow some tenant how can i get it vacated so our tenancy laws are so bad where do the people go i mean when the people come to this country people come to these cities they first go to the slums as you're talking about and in india we somehow see the slums are evil places we need to throw them out of the cities this was jagmohan singh's uh, jagmohan's uh, uh, original thing when he tried to do that when he was you know trying to redevelop delhi so point is that if you throw the slums out of the cities where would this poor migrant population go you need to redevelop those slums into affordable housing and another obsession we have in this country we want everyone to buy homes wherever they live now why should a person suppose someone is coming from lucknow to delhi or going from lucknow to bombay or bangalore why do you want that person to buy a home in bangalore and in mumbai and invest one or two crore people in that uh, rupee in that flat sorry not people a rupee in that flat when he already might be having two homes back at lucknow so because it is there because of a ten, uh, rent market or the tenancy laws are so bad the cheap housing is not available which you can rent out and in a good condition in a good locality so these are the things we need to do we need to incentivize the people to stay in the urban areas by a spectrum of the policies it can't just be just one or two and that can only happen kushal when cities become the center of the political power and this is why i say that the hyderabad elections the corporation elections were so lit you know i mean it was wonderful to watch that election that bjp going in and fighting it like a mini national election because that shifts the discourse that just shifts the center of the political power in the long run now if you're fighting that election with such energy you are taking so much of political capital that the position of mayor and the position of municipal corporation will also become stronger politically and when political power becomes stronger other things do follow right slowly the urban corporations will have more power they will greater devolution over time the leadership will say oh if i want to become the prime minister tomorrow i should contest the mayor election when i'm young so i will become the mayor then i'll become the cm then i'll become the pm that will start changing the entire discourse and how we deal with urban governance so political thing is very important it's not just a technical question we are dealing with now let us look at this a little deeper now and this can be our last segment before we take a few questions from the live viewers so india's reality is caste jaat basically aapki jaat aapki class your level in the society and aapki qaum your community your sense so the qaum sometimes is your jaat based community sometimes it's your jaat 
plus based community sometimes it's your jat plus be uh, plus 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 it, it keeps changing according to the situation now it's very clear that the reason politicians don't like to change this urban rural divide is because they want india to remain in this rubbish social rigmarole of jati and rural india we all know when a person moves from a rural setup to an urban setup i mean I, i'm just giving you a very lay, lame uh, you know uh, lame analysis here because i mean i'm just trying to dumb it down as much as possible look you move into a city cities are multi ethnic multilingual multi uh, cultural in every possible sense they're diverse so even if you don't like someone from being of a jat or a religion or a ethnicity or a skin color you just have to deal with them they're right at your face in a city cities lead to liberal attitudes because that's because you're trading constantly in a city right you just people are at your face all the time you're trading all the time and what uh, it, there is sufficient anthropological data that says that the more you urbanize the more you liberalize you just don't have any option you have to liberalize when you urbanize in a very weird way the old political guard of india and this is where i totally agree with you with your analysis of bjp and their push to urbanize india and bjp's push to look at urban centers as the new power centers of india and i am sure that uh, if india goes into that direction i think a lot of caste based problems a lot of class based problems i'm not saying they'll be eliminated completely don't misquote me on this one please guys but i think the current political class the old the old guard really doesn't want to take the focus away from rural india to urban india one of the biggest reasons is identity politics jat based politics which has been the stump of indian rajneeti is going to be shattered if we become uh, urban what do you think abhinav well, i fully agree see in india uh the social orthodoxy hates cities it's hates urbanization it's a historical trend you see the the use of mahayantras the use of machines the use of uh you know in industry is actually looked down upon in the social orthodoxy uh discourse because they say that you know it leads to uh, uh you know intercaste marriages it leads to loss of uh, varnashrama it leads it is is you know the people deviate from the dharma when they are when there is industry and cities and not so, so the, uh, social orthodoxy hates urbanization no doubt about it and you look at the period of periods of history in india where social orthodoxy has been weakened greatly especially the jati varna system has been weakened greatly what the period of great economic prosperity and urbanization and this is also very interesting uh, normally we see that asli bharat gaon mein rehta hai aur gaon bharat ki atma hai and what not but throughout the history you would see uh india has always been a very highly sophisticated urban civilization right by the standards of those time of course you cannot have a city of 2 crore people in 500 ad but you had patliputra so uh, uh, by the standards of those time india was highly urban at any given point barring the period of invasions and chaos when you obviously have dislocation of the trade and commerce and cities do decline and everything we talk about indian history think of it very carefully you talk about vijayanagar empire you talk about hampi you don't talk about the villages of vijayanagar empire right you take pride in the cities of ancient india in the indian history 
but somehow you know you have uh, this romanticism of the ruler india i don't know from where it comes i think that last 200 years of intellectual corruption is responsible for this thing but while social orthodoxy hates urbanization but the other school of thought really do love urbanization so you see the anti caste movements in this country look at the poetry of the bhakti movement right the anti caste poetry uh, all of them celebrate cities right so when you talk about tukaram you talk about kabir you talk about ravidas none of them imagine village as an ideal state in their poem you can go and read it for tukaram is pandharpur for ravidas is uh, begampura which is an urban center for uh, kabir is prem nagri is nagri is never a village because they could see that instinctively that's in the cities where you have better freedom better equal society it's not that urban societies are equal you have lots of differentiation on economic basis class basis in india even on the caste basis that you have you can see this low concentration of certain caste in certain parts because this is how what we are i mean we can't escape that but it's far better than in the villages so that is true i mean we really don't like it uh, but i don't think political parties or the old guards are thinking in that manner that they are doing some grand conspiracy it's just that it's inertia it's just that they are part of it they are beneficiary of the system and there's no incentive for them to change it and why would there be an incentive when urban population don't even vote in the election i mean mumbai delhi i mean they're shameful places if you look at the uh, voting percentages so if you don't vote politicians will never cater to you democracy is about numbers if you don't show your numbers on the street if you don't show your number on the polling booth no one is going to listen to you if you can get the 10000 farmers in delhi and block the highways the government will negotiate with you even though you are making completely unreasonable demands so we have to understand it's not that politicians or old guard are conspiring i don't think they can think that that level at all the point is that they're simply responding to the incentives so yeah, we need to change and you know what the interesting part is the people who tend to romanticize the village are the people who have primarily benefited from urbanization made tons of money i'm not taking names here magar jisko samajhdar ko ishara kafi hota hai most people that i see in the world of uh, indian uh, socio political discourse whether it's on mainstream media or on social media most people who have benefited a from capitalism b from modernity c from dilution of caste orders they all after making money reaping the benefits and having enough money ki bhai if i don't work now i'm set now they want the status quo these are the most selfish people on planet earth kyunki bhaiya tumne to tarakki kar li ab dusre ko udhar hi latka ke rakho what do you think about yeah, yeah, this is a very you know i always say when you talk about bhartiya sanskriti there are two traits of bhartiya sanskriti when you talking about your sanskriti and your great civilization there are good and bad as well so in india's bhartiya sanskriti i always say there are two traits which are very uh you know common we have very standard one is petty feudalism in this country and the second one is begar right and you can see begar in your home as well perhaps uh, your aunt your neighborhood auntie not willing to pay the housemaid the proper wage but wants her to do over and above what is required that's begar you don't want to pay people and you see that everywhere i think most of you will agree with this attitude we just want to get the work done but don't want to pay other thing is petty feudalism everyone who is sitting at every anywhere right 
you even a chota mota babu in the government office will make you run around because he enjoys that power it's not just about bribery it's also about enjoying that power you know petty feudalism that is also true uh, but i would also want to tell you something very interesting and let me also share my driver story because everyone shares that so i should also share that my ola uber driver story so it was around 2 years back i i booked a cab i was going somewhere in delhi itself so uh i was just talking i normally make it a point to talk to the drivers i just don't tweet about it so uh i was talking to him he was from eastern up and he told me that uh, and he was from some upper caste i'm forgetting what caste exactly and he said bhaiya i have uh, now three cars out here and i try to get as many uh, young people from the villages to the delhi ncr and i help them to settle down here so i bring everyone but uh, you know when i was trying to get these uh, Uh, lower caste people those who are ebc caste not the dalit caste was talking about some extremely backward caste he said when i i was trying to get them here my own elders my father including they actually tried to convince me for more than 2 to 3 hours don't do this thing if you're taking these lower caste people from the village to the cities who's going to work here i mean and then when they will go to the cities they will not even respect you so they said they tried to brainwash me for 2 3 hours they don't take them so this is a this is a problem in this country because you know uh, i mean those parents would be very happy if his this son this driver becomes a big businessman run 100 uh, fleet of 100 cars but they don't want others to do that you know so this is this is how our social structure is and i think this is greatly conditioned by the caste system because caste system is a system of graded hierarchy right it's not just upper caste lower caste you every time you have someone above you someone below you in this system and i think that breeds this kind of mentality where you really are in a you're always insecure about your social position so you are very brutal or at least if not brutal very hostile to the people below you and you are very you know shastang pranam to the people above you so this is the kind of social behavior we see in india i mean i'm doing i'm i'm stretching myself doing some kind of a psycho sociological analysis but i think this is what we observe in a daily basis in india and we can't skip that yeah and uh, it's just to be honest this is our uh, social reality no matter what we want to say so let's start taking a few questions from the live viewers now so shriram says what are the reforms required to be implemented cascaded to these reforms to achieve free economies like new zealand i think uh, shriram i think uh, abhinav has answered that question uh, quite well he said we should focus on industrialization and manufacturing so i think uh, the government if you ask me the government i i'll take abhinav's views also the government has already taken the baby steps there i think the agricultural reforms are part of that i think labor reforms are significant if you look at labor reforms look most of these people that are going to migrate from rural areas to urban areas they are going to find jobs in msmes they are not going to find jobs in corporates always remember that so this this new uh, labor reform that has been introduced by the government where up to 300 crore turnover companies can have i think a higher and fire policy that that will improve job opportunities in urban centers what do you think abhinav Sorry, I was losing your voice. Was dropping, Kushil. Can you repeat the last line? No. So I was saying. So what do you think uh, about? So what was? So do you think these latest uh, set of labor reforms are they going to help uh, yeah, in, yeah. in a very big way? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these. I mean, these are the things we should have done in the 1960s itself. Somehow we didn't do that. Uh, see, one of the reason. I mean, India is a very peculiar state. You are a labor-intensive country. You have cheap labor. 
but somehow India specializes in the export of the capital intensive goods. If you look at the trade data. So we should be idly exporting all these labor intensive goods like textile and other things like China started doing the small things first then graduating up to the value chain. But India basically exports labor capital intensive goods. And that has a huge problem because that has a limited market. Why? Because we're not an advanced economy. We're not technologically advanced. Your labor is not that skilled. So the kind of capital intensive goods you're producing does not find market in the advanced economies of the world like Europe and America because they want really high quality goods. So where do you sell your exports? You sell them in Africa, like right? the countries which are less developed than you or developing countries than you, and which is a very limited market. So the export sector has never grown. But if you're going to, and one of the main reasons was your labor reforms, not the only reason, the main reason was your labor loss. Now, once you are able to liberalize your labor and bring in flexibility in the labor market, you're incentivizing your industry to produce more. You're basically incentivizing this entire spectrum of uh, manufacturing in this country, especially the low cost manufacturing, which will also pull in lots of labor from the villages, which will also help you export more and also get you into the global supply chains. Somehow in India, we have I think we have just too much of pride in this country, right? So uh, we say, no, why do we want to do? So we are making this mobile phones in India. We have actually uh, uh, been able to script one success story. So we are a leading uh, a mobile manufacturer in this country. But people say, oh, but we are not making mobile phone in India. We are only assembling them in India. So the components are being made in Korea, in Taiwan. We're simply getting those components and in the assembly line, we are simply assembling them. But this is what you do, bro. I mean, the manufacturing process is so complex. It is now so diversified. It's so scattered across the globe in the value chains that this whole idea of building something from scratch to the finish is not going to work. So assembly lines are the way to go for India because assembly lines absorb huge amount of labor, huge amount of labor, right? And this is how China also started. The China also used to do assembly of the products. Now it's getting into manufacturing of those products. So uh, I think these labor reforms are a step in the right direction. And going forward, I'm pretty sure we will see the impact on the ground. But something has to be done about the arbitrary power enjoyed by our bureaucrats. Please, someone cut down their power. I mean, they are a nuisance of the highest order in this country. I would be the first one to sign up on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Rahul Prabhakaran has asked a very interesting question. So he has asked, how many PhDs does India need to produce? Is there a correlation between number of PhDs produced and GDP per day, uh, per GDP per capita, excluding the Middle Eastern oil, eco oil economies, obviously? Rahul was very precise in this question. I think actually I can answer this. I will, uh, uh, Rahul, uh, I don't know if you've read Arvind Panagriya's book. I think he talks about in where not from a, a economic perspective, but he talks about from a societal perspective how India lags behind China, America, and other Western European nations in terms of number of research papers and patents produced. And one of the biggest reason is our education system, which is a complete uh, um, uh, I don't know abomination is the is the right is the right word, but I'll let uh, Avinav speak more about it. So, what are your views, Avinav? Well, uh, I don't think there's such exact study, but yeah, many studies have pointed out that amount of knowledge production, which can be measured by the PhDs and all those things, 
do have a great impact on the economic growth. But that exact thing, correlation, see, those kind of correlations are very difficult to come across. So, uh, yes, there are studies. There are, there's a model called NK model, uh, you know, uh, which deals with the patents being registered. A very good work has been done by uh, Ashirwad Divedi, who is my colleague at SRCC. So you can read his paper. I, I'll share I'll share with you, uh, Harsh. So he did what he did this uh, uh, research on from where the patents in India are coming from. And he say that research activity in India is extremely concentrated in some metropolitan cities. And the moment you move out of those metropolitan cities, the amount of uh, you know, patents decline very drastically. And that proves my point, and that is true for everywhere in the world. The cities are the center of knowledge production, and they are the engines of economic growth. Because in a complex economy of today's technological-driven economy, knowledge productions drive your economic growth. But exact study, no. But yeah, there are enough studies which say number of patents, economic growth, are correlated to each other. That, that's that's very fascinating. So uh, a related question to that, because we are in the line of PhD production. So Tanmay has asked, do you think the new education policy will actually help us in achieving 100% literacy? Well, that's not the function of new education policy. That's the function of your polity, right? Uh, policies can be really good. I mean, if your polity is unable to deliver them or do not take them seriously, it's not going to work on the ground. But the problem is that, you know, I remember some uh, uh, officer took the charge of education secretary of Bihar and he tweeted something a couple of months back that education is the process of something, something very complex philosophical gyan. And I remember co-tuting him saying them, let me make it, let me simplify it for you. Just teach the people how to read, write, and how to do basic mathematics. And that's more than enough in this country at this moment. If you're teaching the kids at the small, at the primary level and up until class 9, 10, 10, how to do basic mathematics, how to do, no, I can't tell you I teach in Delhi University, right? People come getting 99%, Kushin. They, they get 90%. <laughs> <laughs> you can't write two pages of coherent answer, yeah. what can I do? It's not their problem. It's, they are not dumb. They are not dumb. They are very intelligent people. But they have never been trained in such things, right? Because now school education is a complete joke. Your CBSC board, other boards are a complete joke. Everyone is getting 100% marks. People come from Kerala. They have 100% marks in Hindi. You, we, can't, we can't question them. We can't deny them admission. But somehow I have seen people saying, can you write one sentence in Hindi? They can't. You know, they have 100% marks. So, uh, you know, uh, the education, you know, you really need to simplify what you want to achieve with your education. Education, you know, it's not just about fighting some civilization war. First, teach your people the basic comprehension, basic logic, basic reasoning, and basic mathematics, and you are set to go. Because if they master those things, if they master language and mathematics and logic, they can excel, they can choose any subject and excel in that subject. Basically, what you're trying to say is make people more employable. This is what Ambedkar said. He said that, you know, there should be complete synergy between the market and education. Now, lots of Ambedkarites today or the leftists today will get a heart attack if they read Ambedkar. He says, make your syllabus according to what industries say. Yeah. <laughs> So your slavery should be according to what Adani and Ambani is saying in today's context. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Ambedkar was a wise man indeed. So let's go to the next question. So here Amog has asked, many problems with respect to infrastructure in rural areas seem to have only top-down solutions. 
is there anything average people can do to maybe contribute uh, in things like this contribute in economic growth yeah maybe in rural india or maybe in terms of providing solutions is there anything an average person can do because everything what he's trying to say is everything whatever comes in rural india seems to be top down i think mm -hmm. if you ask me i think the whole point is getting them out of there is the solution yeah that's the only solution in the long run but this see, this top down structure remember in this country not just a different trajectory altogether india has always been historically has always been a weak state right the state power doesn't work in india historically see the society has always been very stronger especially in the countryside especially in the villages the state power was registered is registered even today britishers were the first people in in under whom whatever is happening in the central government started having impact on the village level otherwise before that the impact was quite limited republic of india is the first entity in the india's thousands of years of history to exercise such a direct control over the daily lives of the people at the grassroots level otherwise this was never the case and this is not an easy thing which is happening there's lots of resistance the, the, it's a very complex thing the the equations how they play out but the point is that if the government of india wants to implement something in the village let's say you want to distribute ration cards to the poor people in the villages right if you leave it to the village itself it will be a complete disaster because sarpanch will only give the ration card to his relatives and his caste people as simple as that as straightforward as that or the people who are good with him and this is true i mean you talk to the bureaucrats on the ground at least in the up i can tell that how many frauds uh, fraud ration cards are given by the sarpanch and all these people to the to their family members who do not even qualify for those ration cards and that is why the top authority the central government has to actually enforce its will by a top down approach as to balance against this local power structures so i don't think this keeping that that's a structural flaw in the indian polity and how our society is but yes top down approach slowly should give way to more decentralized control that's the way to go forward more devolution of power but i think it's a process and i think it will happen in the coming decades i mean you compare today's india with the india of 1950s and 60s uh, we have greater decentralization than before right so earlier it was completely five year plan coming from the top it's no longer the case mm, i agree so one more question this is actually a very good question it's about our discussion so tanmay has said lately there has been a lot of migration of educated individuals going back to villages and adopting innovative farming techniques with high yielding results are such people able to have any impact on agriculture on the whole he's just i think what he's trying to ask it's not just about agriculture what he's trying to say is there is this migration of successful people who attained some kind of success in urban areas they're going back to rural areas and trying to have some sort of an impact maybe in agriculture maybe in education maybe in the field of medicine in some way but do you think that they could actually have a positive impact and create maybe some sort of capitalist job opportunities in rural areas uh, maybe they're not urban but we can make them urban like rural urban centers mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I mean that's a, that's a uh, I mean this is how it should be. But remember, this this migration is happening because of the choice. So these people are comfortable in their life, so they can choose to take this kind of risk. They can go back, and that's always welcome. But uh, I mean, your as far as your question is concerned, is it having an impact? I mean, we have no way of measuring that. But certainly, I'm pretty sure that these such things have positive impact on their surroundings. 
some people will fail, some people will lose interest, some people will succeed and transform their surroundings. So uh, I'm always for it. I mean, but this is something we have to understand cannot be an argument for not letting people out of the villages. Absolutely. I agree with you. So one more question here is that it's it's a, this is a tangible example. So and this is the reality. I think I mean, I don't know. Gujarat government gave the BPL and homeless people of uh, which are, diff, you know, people doing menial jobs, homes at 20, 20,000, I think what he's saying, but they rented it out and lived on the streets. How do we solve a problem like that? Well, the solution is right in front of your face. The solution is that because there is nothing in rural India, you have you go on having these uh, situations, right, Abhinav? Hundred percent sure. I mean, these are the wrong policies, wrong populist policies. I mean, this is just like giving people a uh, buffalo or a cow. Uh, the people who are who are suffering from drought or who are starving, they end up selling it to a middleman who end, who sells them to the butcher in the end. This is how it happens in the rural India. I mean, forget your romanticism with all these. Uh, uh, cow and all, but this is the who sells the cow to the butcher. I mean, not directly, but indirectly, but mostly Hindu farmers, the poor farmers, even the rich farmers I know. I mean, many of my friends have told me that they can't sustain them anymore. So they give it to a person, they sell, sell them off, and they know ultimately the, that buffalo or cow will end up with the butcher. So this is the kind of policy here we have. So you're giving those poor people who do not even have a job, who do not even have a proper income, we're asking them to live in and maintain a flat when its economic opportunity is far better if they rent it out. This is always going to happen. So these are classical bureaucratic wrong policies of how to deal with this kind of problem. And I think that's how and I think these are pursued because when you're building home, you're building apartments for the poor people, you're giving contracts, the bureaucrats and the policymakers are making money. So it's win-win for everyone who cares of what is happening in the end. So yeah, I think so that's the yeah, so another interesting comment. Tanmay says, my village in near Kolapur has 24 hours electricity with no power outages and my friend living in Virar has, been, has to bear three-hour power cuts every day due to transmission loss. God only knows where the rural India decides. Well, Tanmay, the reason is, again, that doesn't make rural India better. That's an infrastructure problem. That is a capacity issue because more and more people are flocking to urban India. You have these issues. So the, the solution doesn't lie in everybody going back to Kolhapur because they have less than three hours power cut. What are they going to do with that? They need jobs. That's the point, Kushal. I mean, uh, th that's a fair point. But point is that are people moving from Kolhapur to Virar or from Virar to Kolhapur? I mean, you have to look at the people. The voting by the fit yeah. is solved everything, right? So, uh, I mean, throughout the uh, so when uh, Cold War, uh, Soviet Union was the great heaven of the labor in the world, and West was evil capitalist place where the laborers were being exploited by the blood-sucking capitalists. Mm -hmm. But throughout the history of the Soviet Union, the labor was running from Soviet Union to the Western Europe. Western European labor was never running to the Soviet Union. And despite the fact that if you're crossing the border, that Iron Curtain, the Soviet uh, police will shoot you dead, right? Even then, lots and lots of people on the other side of the Iron Curtain would try to jump and cross over to the Western Europe. That tells you everything, right? Forget all the data, all the ideology. Voting by the fit resolves all the dilemmas you might have. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or in Hindi, they say, Bhuke pet bhajan na hove gopala. Pet to bharo pehle. So one last question and then we'll wrap it up. So somebody has asked, uh, 
have you read Isabel Wilkins uh, Wilkerson's book? Uh, I think her book is uh, the epic story of America's great migration and caste. Have you read that book? And if yes, did you like it? Somebody's asking. Oh no, I haven't. But I'm looking forward to read it now. Okay, so all right. I, even I've not read the book. Well, I tend to avoid most books uh, written from a postmodern prism because I've read uh, original postmodern literature, and believe me, it's bollocks. <laughs> It's, it's a load of rubbish. So I, I try to stay away. Anyways, I think it's time to wrap things up. Uh, Abhinav, uh, once again, thanks uh, for coming on the podcast. It's uh, always a pleasure chatting with you. And you know, my live viewers said that uh, Kushal ji, you have to call Abhinav once again. You don't talk so much about it. You don't talk so much about it. And one thing I want to say, I mean, lots of people were commenting that, you know, why I'm saying upper caste, lower caste. I'm quoting the driver. I mean, this is how they talk about Choti Jatka, Nichi Jatka. So I'm just quoting him, as simple as that. I normally prefer to say forward caste, backward caste, dominant caste, you know. Just then, yeah. you know, lots of people are commenting, so I just thought I should clarify. You have to understand this one thing. Caste is a reality in India. The only people who say caste doesn't exist, and I'm not saying they're bad people, believe me, because I was one of those people a few years ago, are people who are upper caste. Because they don't have to face the brunt of casteism. The only people who have to face the brunt of casteism are lower caste people. So let's just face the reality. India has a caste problem. Just a couple of days ago, my mom shared a story with me where a lower caste Dalit boy was going on a ghodi, a horse, and a wedding horse. And some people of the caste that were above him, they attacked him and they did not let his ghodi go out. And is this the first time this has happened in India? No, it is not. It happens all the time. Is it reducing? Absolutely. And you know how it's reducing? Urbanization, liberalization, capitalism. These things actually chase things. So please support these things. I know we, we love to, you know, once we become upper middle class, we start romanticizing the rural life. Oh, kitna acha hai. kitni saaf hai. Bhaiya, aisa hai. आपको हवा इतनी अच्छी लगती है वीकेंड पे उधर जाके जितनी लंबी लंबे सांसें लेनी है ले लो क्योंकि वहां पैसे कुछ नहीं मिलने आपको एंड स्टॉप रूइनिंग द लाइफ ऑफ अदर पीपल सो अभिनव थैंक्स अ लॉट वन लास्ट पॉइंट आई लाइक टू मेक क्वेश्चन आउट हियर व्हेन यू टॉकिंग अबाउट कास्ट इट ऑलवेज रिमेंबर द कास्ट इज अ सिस्टम ऑफ ग्रेडेड हायरार्की इट्स नॉट जस्ट अबाउट दलित्स एंड द अपर कास्ट इट्स अ होल स्पेक्ट्रम आउट देयर इट्स अ ग्रेडेड हायरार्की सेकंड पॉइंट इज दैट यू नो इन इंडिया अनलाइक इन अमेरिका और द वेस्ट the right wing parties win in the urban areas not in the rural areas so it's completely opposite of how the conservative party performs and democrats perform in the uh, americas so the more urbanization you have the more possibility of hindu nationalists coming to power <laughs> thank you kushal yeah. all right abhinav thanks a lot for coming on the podcast uh, all right guys time to wrap things up uh, if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the podcast like share leave your comments in the comment section also please if you want to support the podcast you can become a member of my youtube channel uh, there are two tiers there's a seekers tier and there's a speak with me tier also you can go on patreon.com and give your pledge on patreon.com/charwork you see the link on the screen if you're watching this on youtube right now or later or if you're listening to it on soundcloud you can go on the link it will be mentioned in the description of podcast uh, abhinav has started a youtube channel too so i'm going to leave a description of abhinav's youtube channel abhinav uh, we never you. talk about his stuff 
I will talk about it. So I'm going to leave a link to Abhinav's YouTube channel. So please subscribe to Abhinav's channel. He's uh, he started making nice uh, uh, monologues uh, or vlogs, as they call it. Please go and watch them. And uh, if you want to buy the Charvak this uh, podcast merch, please go to kushalmehra.com/shop. And on that note, I will leave you guys for the day until. Uh, i come back with another interesting guest and another interesting uh, concept and topic to discuss till then namaste take care goodbye see you next time